This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Economic sanctions. We've been hearing this term a lot recently, especially with relation to the Russia-Ukraine crisis. We know that countries are throwing sanctions at Russia in an effort to stop their invasion of Ukraine. But what exactly are sanctions and how do they work? I'm Darshan Johan and this is Today I Learned. Joining me on the show today is a regular guest, Assistant Professor Peter Beattie. He's a lecturer in global political economy and political psychology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Welcome to the show, Peter. Um, what exactly are economic sanctions? Thank you, Dashan. Good to be back here with you. Well, I think you can you can think of it uh, pretty clearly if you just imagine uh, siege warfare in the past. So uh, siege warfare, you surround a, a city, everyone uh, in the city moves to the castle, surround the castle, everyone stays in the castle and tries to, to live as long as they can and hopefully wait out the invading army. Hopefully they're, they run uh, low on supplies or their soldiers desert or what have you, and then you can get out of the castle and, and live your life. From the invading army's perspective, uh, siege warfare is, is about cutting the, the target off from all of the, the goods that they need to survive and hopefully force them to uh, surrender. Well, that's basically what, what modern economic sanctions are, just in a different form. You don't you know, it'd be impossible, first of all, to like completely surround a country with a blockade, with ships, et cetera, or at least, you know, far too difficult. Uh, but you can produce somewhat similar or very similar effects. You, you cut the target country off of the needed inputs uh, that it requires to, to have a, a functioning economy. And you use that as a form of, of coercion to try to get that government to do what the sanctioning country wants it to do. So I think that's a really simple but but accurate understanding of, of what economic sanctions are fundamentally. With that in mind, would you say that economic sanctions are sort of like a last resort before war? I think the way that, that they're viewed, uh, and not just in the US, but uh, certainly in, in Western countries for a long time now, is that they're, they're viewed as uh, some an, an alternative to war. A lot of people in who are involved in founding the League of Nations uh, viewed economic sanctions as a kind of peaceful tool that could be used to obtain the kinds of outcomes that previously only war could be used to obtain. Are there different forms of sanctions, Peter? And do they serve different purposes? I'm thinking about, say, Russian athletes getting banned from global sporting events or the change of location of the Champions League finals. And even um, recently, the F1 team Haas terminated the contract of their driver, Nikita Mazepin. Well, I think the, the purpose is the same for a lot of different forms of, of, of economic coercion. And that is to... Uh, coerce the target government into doing something that it otherwise would not do. Um, and so, of course, the, the, the goals of sanctions vary uh, quite a bit. Uh, the, the kinds of things that you're talking about recently, like the, the banning of uh, athletes from Russia from competing in events, uh, Champions League moving out of uh, uh, Russia for the final. Right. It's even like uh, uh, concert halls canceling Tchaikovsky music because he was Russian. Right. 
Um, that's that's somewhat different from uh, economic sanctions traditionally conceived. That's actually a lot closer to the the BDS movement, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement uh, regarding Israel Palestine. Uh, some of these things, the idea that that uh, even boycotting cultural events, or if you're an academic, you would refuse to uh, accept an invitation to speak at a university in Israel, or if you're a, a singer, you would refuse to to go there for the same reason. That's that's more of like the boycott part of BDS. But now we we're starting to see some of you know the same people who had condemned BDS uh, and have condemned BDS in the past. They're they're very enthusiastic about applying BDS to Russia. So. Uh, it's it's been interesting to see that, but I would just conceptually keep uh, some of these these other things separate from sanctions, right. especially when they're not you know part of a, a a law that a government is is implementing. When it's just kind of voluntaristic boycotting on the part of you know a, a concert venue or a, I, the most funniest example <laughs> I saw was in Wisconsin. They had a museum of mustard. And they they took down a jar of Russian mustard, and in <laughs> place they put a sign saying, "You know, we are boycotting the the display of Russian mustard until uh, uh, Russia leaves Ukraine, and then we'll we'll be putting it back." You know, so I, I just as a matter of, of semantics, I would call that more in the realm of of uh, boycott, and then the the legal mechanisms are sanctions. So when we look at economic sanctions, when did it become a thing, and how did it? How did it come about and when was it first used? So I was trying to look this up because I haven't read much about the, the uh, long history of sanctions. Right. And you can find people uh, arguing that economic sanctions you know, started as far back as ancient Greece. Um, I bet you that you could probably find examples in, in ancient China. Uh, it's just, you know, the, the Western bias of a lot of researchers and the sources they have available. You know, the earliest thing they could find was Greece. But uh, the the modern form of, of sanctions seems to really have have developed uh, during World War One, uh, because in the 19th century, during the the you know what some people call like globalization 1.0 or the first wave of, of globalization, uh, even during wartime, the the uh, norm around the the world was to continue to pay foreign debts and to keep commerce separate from war. Uh, but then during World War One, when you know all of the the European powers were involved in butchering each other, uh, they you know a strategy that was applied against Germany was to blockade Germany and and prevent it from getting the the economic inputs that it couldn't produce itself, but which it needed to produce you know material for the war, uh, keep the domestic population happy, etc. Um, and then in addition to the blockade, because that line had already been crossed. Uh, what we would call sanctions today were, were, were imposed. And then after the war, uh, the idea was, oh, this is, this is great. We should never have had the separation between uh, commerce and politics, or you know, politics including warfare. Um, and we can use economic sanctions as a tool for peace, that instead of having to, to threaten uh, countries with a military response, we can threaten them with an economic response, and that threat might suffice to you know, prevent them from engaging in any sort of belligerent behavior. Now, I came across this term when I was doing uh, some reading on this topic, and the term is called um, extraterritorial sanctions. What does this mean? There's a common misconception that sanctions only really apply 
uh, between the, the the two countries, the sanctioner, mostly the U.S., mm-hmm. and the the target country. Right. Uh, but that's a, a very uh, important misconception, uh, and you you see that all over. I've I've heard so many people refer to that uh, misconception when they're talking about the U.S. sanctions on Cuba. Uh, even people within Cuba who are critical of the government, they'll say, "Ah, oh, you know, the government is always complaining about the sanctions. They blame everything on the the sanctions." And they have a they have a good point. Like people in Cuba criticizing the government, you know, there are uh, uh, policies the the Cuban government implements that have effects that aren't entirely the result of U.S. sanctions. But here's the key misconception that that lead people to underestimate the importance and relevance of sanctions. It's not just a matter between the U.S. and Cuba. Uh, U.S. sanctions apply extraterritorially. They, they apply the world over because the U.S. is in such a, uh, a dominant role economically that U.S. components, at least just components, are found in a massive range of products. Uh, U.S. patents apply to uh, even uh, aspects of technology that aren't owned by a U.S. domiciled investor. They can be owned by anyone around the world. But even if it's a U.S. patent, U.S. sanctions law can be made to apply to those items as well. So if you're a third country, if you're Malaysia, if you're France, if you're, uh, you know, India, Germany, Japan, whatever country you are, and you you say, I think the U.S. sanctions on Cuba are absurd. I think they're immoral. Uh, I don't support them. I want our companies to be able to have free trade with Cuba. That doesn't really matter that much because so long as your uh, company in your country is producing something that has some uh, U.S. component to it, then the U.S. government can uh, basically attack that company. Right Now, if, if your company doesn't have any assets in the U.S., if it doesn't sell anything in the U.S., well, I'm sure that you know there are some very few companies in the world that could withstand uh, the kind of pressure that the U.S. would br- bring to bear on that company trading with with Cuba and you know the goods that are that it's trading has some US component but there's not many companies that that can say that so US sanctions are in a sense a kind of of global sanctions even if other countries don't want to participate right. it's just a matter of of cost benefit and the cost is immense uh, one related thing to that You'll hear uh, U.S. government officials say, oh, these are these are targeted sanctions. We have humanitarian exemptions. So, you know, you you can't blame us for uh, a humanitarian crisis in that country. Well, here's the thing. Yes, you can create a sanctions regime that has cutouts for humanitarian items like medicine or, or food. Right. But you have this other issue called overcompliance with sanctions. That is. Uh, uh, companies around the world, they don't have to be in the U.S., they can be in any country, will refuse to engage in trade with that country, even for items that are on humanitarian exemption lists. And banks will, will oftentimes refuse to fund any sort of, of, of project, any sort of trade uh, between two countries, simply because of the possibility of legal trouble. Maybe, you know, the the, the item... Uh, is, you know, the, the an attorney general in the U.S. says, oh, you know, this item uh, is actually not the same item described in the humanitarian carve out uh, or whatever the, right. the other issue is. A bank or a, another company would just say, what's the, the benefit for us? Uh, in normal times, we we have trade. We have some profit here. 
But these are not normal times. We run the risk, even if it looks like we're following U.S. sanctions because of the, the humanitarian exemption. We just don't want the, the possibility of ruinous uh, right. uh, consequences. So that's I just wanted to explain that because for a lot of people I know, they, they don't understand just how powerful U.S. sanctions are. Right. Prior to 1990, the U.N. Council imposed sanctions against just two states, which is southern uh, Rhodesia in 1966 and then South Africa later, about 10 years later in 1977. However, since the end of the Cold War, the, the UN body has used sanctions more than 20 times. Why is this so? How did the Cold War change things? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think the, the uh, main answer to that is just that uh, during the Cold War, all sorts of, of disputes around the world, uh, you know, in, in all sorts of forms, uh, people in those conflicts would turn to either the Soviet Union uh, or the U.S. or rather the, the, the socialist camp, so China included, uh, or the, the Western capitalist camp uh, for assistance. So because the Security Council requires unanimity, unanimity uh, if, if either the U.S. or the Soviet Union or any of of the other permanent members wanted to veto uh, proposed sanctions, they they could have. Uh, after the, the the Cold War uh, and the the elimination of any sort of ideological dispute between what then became Russia and the U.S., uh, I think that was the the key factor in in opening up uh, the Security Council's use of sanctions. And there's an interesting legal argument there, or well, to some people would would find it interesting that. Uh, unilateral sanctions are actually in violation of international law because the UN Charter has kind of taken that uh, into the the province of the United Nations itself and the Security Council more more specifically, uh, implying that you, the use of unilateral sanctions is not condoned by international law. But you know, sadly, when when we talk about anything international law related. We have to always have a little proviso in there that it doesn't really matter because there's no enforcement of it. I think it's just of academic interest. Now, I wonder if what you just said ties into my next question about sanctioning the U.S. Because when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine crisis, the U.S. and the West in general talk about how Russia is invading Ukraine, which is a violation of international law. And that is 100% correct. Um, but what they say is, hence, um, sanctions should be thrown at them. In fact, um, they try to rally as many countries as possible around the world to sanction Russia. Um, this, in concept at least, um, appears to be a principled move. But the same treatment, and, and this is where it gets interesting, the same treatment isn't extended to the US when they violate international law. I'm talking about the inv invasion of Afghanistan, going to war with Vietnam and Iran, funding wars all over the Middle East, um, including... Um, you know, the war that's going on in Yemen right now, the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world. The list goes on and on. So why aren't sanctions being thrown at the U.S.? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I was just thinking as you were asking it, like if I were, were a Israeli nationalist, I would be really annoyed because, you know, the best argument that I would have on my side is, BDS against us? Like, what about BDS against the U.S.? Like, they're guilty of far worse crimes than our government is. But of course, you know, they, they couldn't use that for, for <laughs> obvious reasons of alliance. But 
I, I think that question is great because it really uh, elucidates the, the dynamics that are important to understanding sanctions. Right. Uh, the rest of the world could uh, impose unilateral sanctions. Of course, they couldn't do it through the Security Council because the U.S. has a veto there. Uh, but, you know, if, if Malaysia, for instance, wanted to impose uh, economic sanctions on the U.S. because of its violation of international law by invading Iraq or any number of, of, of other instances, uh, it could do so. The problem is, is that there, no other country has enough power to be able to make those sanctions bite, so to speak. So, you know, if, if Malaysia were to impose sanctions, uh, it would it would affect whatever exports uh, are going from Malaysia to the U.S. It would also affect uh, imports coming from the U.S. to Malaysia. So long as as the U.S. is in an economically stronger position vis-a-vis any other country interested in imposing sanctions, most likely the, the greater negative effect would be felt by that country with a weaker uh, economy than that of the U.S., so that's really just the the practical reason why uh, the U.S. is able to escape sanctions and even talk of of sanctions uh, anytime it violates international law. So what you're seeing here is that outside of academic discussions or, or principles, international law literally is just something that smaller countries may have to abide to, but sp- superpowers don't have to because they're just too powerful and the global superpower, the superpower is the US. And no other country in the world has the power or the hold on the global economy the way the US does. And so it's almost impossible for anyone, any other country to hold the US accountable whenever they violate international law. Um, You literally cannot sanction them without possibly hurting yourself in the process as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, precisely. I would say that every country on earth has the power to impose sanctions, but uh, you know the, the effects of those sanctions would be you know huge variation in the effects of those sanctions. So, practically speaking, uh, not very many countries at all have uh, a practical power to impose sanctions because in most of the, the cases the. The, the effect on the country sanctioning another country itself would be too high. It's kind of like Jonathan, Jonathan Swift said, uh, the law is like uh, cobwebs. It's powerful enough to capture like little gnats and, and tiny flies, but you know a big old bumblebee will just fly right through it. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a lecturer in global political economy and political psychology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. After the break, I ask him if sanctions actually work. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a lecturer in global political economy and political psychology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And we're doing a 101 on economic sanctions. So, Peter, have economic sanctions been abused by superpower countries? Yeah, well, I would, I, I, I can't say no to that uh, question because, you know, look at just for maybe the most egregious example, uh, U.S. sanctions on Cuba uh, that are nearly, you know, they're over half a century old now. Um, I think that's a, a clear example of abuse of sanctions. Uh, you could look at uh, the sanctions on Venezuela and Iran as well. Um, you know, it, it just it, it becomes a question of 
how are you defining abuse? Like, what, what is the standard that that should be used? Um, and and I don't really know, you know, what the the, the uh, if, if there's a standard that everyone would agree to. But I think some of the considerations that are involved in uh, just war theory, like when is it, it when is it just to ever participate in a war, are applicable here. Uh, and that is uh, the 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 question of are they likely to have the effect that is desired. So if if the effect is, uh, you know, we the U.S. wants uh, North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons program, you can look at the track record and see if it is there's any indication whatsoever that they're working. Uh, and then if they're not, well, then that I think in itself is a uh, uh, is relevant to the question of are sanctions being abused. Um, but you know, again, abuse is a is a is a question that you know invites all sorts of of clarification. Like, what what exactly do you mean by by abuse? But I think it's clear. I think for most normal people, that when they see sanctions have not uh, achieved the stated aim of the sanctions, and you they have measurably harmed the the broad population of these countries, uh, I don't see how you can argue that that's not uh, a form of abuse. Um, do sanctions actually work? Do they prevent an escalation of conflict? Do they prevent war? Do they prevent um, death and suffering that would have otherwise um, have come at a, uh, because of, you know, guns and, 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 and bombs and, and whatnot? Well, I've got uh, two answers to that right. question, a short one and a long one. The short okay. answer is no. Uh, the long answer is there's a lot of literature in political science about this question. And uh, they, the, the range of, of answers is fairly broad. Like there are papers that uh, say that the, the history of sanctions show that they do work in some cases. And then you've got other base papers uh, saying that, no, they really don't seem to work much at all. And it all kind of depends on uh, the, the, the cases that you include in your study uh, how you define uh, a threat of sanctions and, what, and whether you think that the threat actually had a, a, a measurable impact. Um, so there's, there's not unanimity in the, in the research on this question, but I think it's very fair to say, even to the people who have published uh, papers that suggest that sanctions are not totally uh, a, fa- a failure of a policy, I think even they would agree that uh, you can say that the evidence for the effectiveness of sanctions is rather weak overall. Um, But sanctions that are less well-known and and discussed uh, might be the examples where they have had an effect. Uh, One of the papers found that uh, sanctions, when they're threatened against an ally, uh, tend to be more effective than sanctions threatened against an enemy state. Right. Um, And, you know, there's lots of reasons, but I think the most prominent one, since we're talking about uh, Russia-Ukraine situation now, is uh, when if, if you're thinking in terms of a cost-benefit analysis, such that a economic cost can really sway your your decision, uh, that's a, a different realm from one in which uh, existential security concerns are at play. Uh, if a government is is thinking that uh, the use of military force is essential to achieve uh, you know, national security, and that by not doing that, they endanger national security, then the, the cost-benefit analysis is so tilted to one side that whatever sort of sanctions are put on the, the country aren't going to be able to, to flip the, the scales. 
do economic sanctions hurt citizens of the countries that are being sanctioned? Um, because sometimes when people use the term sanctions, it's said in a way that, you know, Putin is being sanctioned or a government is being sanctioned. But are there repercussions towards civilians and everyday working class people? Well, I mean, they can be extremely severe. I mean, there were estimates done of the effect of sanctions in World War One against Germany that found that uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people uh, died as a result. Um, there have been there's been a, a study of the effect of sanctions in Venezuela that covered, I believe, just a two year period. And the estimate was that about 40,000 people died as a result of, of those sanctions. So it, it's certainly a, a misconception to think that uh, sanctions are somehow intrinsically uh, not capable of causing massive destruction and even death compared to war. I think in, in some ways the effects are quite comparable. So before we wrap this conversation up, Peter, do you think san- economic sanctions are the best way f- to prevent countries from violating this, you know, mythical international law? Or are there better approaches to it? Sanctions are a really, really broad uh, sort of policy of, of, of aggression or coercion. So you, you could imagine sanctions that are solely aimed at oligarchs. Uh, there was a, a interesting op-ed by uh, Thomas Piketty uh, just a few days ago, uh, saying that uh, the the main impediment toward uh, an effective sanctions regime that would only target the the top 0.1 percent in Russia are the top one percent of the West. Right. That is, what would really be effective is creating a kind of global registry of of all wealth that would be able to track. Uh, ownership claims, even through, you know, tax havens and all sorts of, you know, the, the, the complicated legal structures that lawyers create for their wealthy clients to hide their their uh, stores of wealth. Uh, so basically, the, the idea was you, you could have a, a, a different kind of sanctions that only froze assets of the very richest in Russia. But the, the, the mechanism required to do that uh, is opposed by the oligarchs of the West, because then their own ability to uh, hide their assets and evade taxation would be uh, threatened. So that's just one example. You can, but I think when when people normally talk about sanctions, they're talking about the the much broader sanctions right. that have, you know, the really harmful effect on average people. And it's it's not funny. Funny is not the right word, but it's uh, I don't know what the right word is. Uh, I think it's linked to the the kind of dominance of, of rational choice theories in a lot of, of Western academia, like right. uh, in economics and in political science. The idea is just that, ah, you know, if I put myself in the, the shoes of the, you know, mythical rational individual in, in Iran, for instance, uh, I'm going to look at my uh, worsening economic situation and I'm going to blame the Iranian government for that. That's... Uh, you know, the, the kind of assumption right. that's implicit in all of these ideas about the effects uh, that sanctions will have. Well, for someone who looks at ideas seriously, which is not the, the dominant uh, practice in Western political science, but if you were to look at ideas seriously, you would actually have to investigate whether or not the people affected by sanctions are actually making that second step and tying the, those, those economic effects to their own government. It's also entirely possible, and in my view, probably more likely, 
that people would look at the economic effects of those sanctions and blame the country sanctioning them rather than their own government. I'm I'm actually uh, 100% in favor of of just freezing the the assets of the richest you know 0.1% in Russia, but you know in, in the, the the sanctions that you know most people talk about really are uh, broad based and they affect everyone in the country and probably the poorest more than anyone else. So it's it's kind of the the worst possible uh, tool to use. Whereas if the global hegemon uh, in the international system, which has been the U.S. since World War II, had used its power or began to use its power even today uh, to establish uh, stronger norms and infec- uh, enforcement mechanisms in international law, which is something it, it could have done by holding itself and its own officials to the standards of international law. You know, if we saw uh, Condi Rice instead of on Fox News uh, agreeing that uh, invading a sovereign country is the the worst war crime. If instead of her being on TV, she were in jail along with uh, Bush and you know the the whole team, uh, then I think you know the international law might have a little bit more uh, force. Uh, and then of course it's it's also a matter of of geopolitical strategy. If if the U.S. Uh, would change its strategy to instead of just simple power maximization, which is the the standard view of, of international relations, it does describe, sadly, how uh, essentially all powerful states throughout uh, recent history have acted. Um, but if the U.S. as global hegemon had not done that and, and sought to actually develop other countries in a way that would harm or, or not harm, but impede the potential of wealth maximization in the U.S., then I think we could be in a very different world and and sanctions would just be very clearly uh, unnecessary and and not used. All right. On that note, Peter, thank you so much for joining me again. My pleasure, Dashman. Thank you for having me. That was Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a lecturer in global political economy and political psychology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check out the podcast on the BFM app, bfm.my or pretty much wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Dashan Johan and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.